you were with us last week, uh, I confessed uh, to you, and any, it wasn't a surprise to anybody that really knows me, uh, that I'm a fast walker. If I have somewhere I have to go, I tend to walk really fast, and I don't even realize that I'm doing it half the time until I look down and see that my kids are trying to run just to keep up with me because I'm moving so fast. Well, what's also true of me is I tend to be a fast eater as well. Any other fast eaters out there? Well, I have four kids, two of which are growing boys, so I have to be a fast eater just to get some food sometimes around the house. I read an article once that eating really fast is not a a good idea, that you're supposed to eat really slow. In fact, uh, the article said that you're supposed to take 30 seconds to chew every mouthful of food that you put in your mouth. Have you ever tried to do that before? That takes forever to do that. Well, if you've been with us uh, this year for Lent, you'll know that we are, uh, we're going on a slow walk. We're going on a, a slow walk through the final week of the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we're looking at, at all the contours and all the textures of what that final week looked like. Uh, today, we're going to look at Tuesday. And Tuesday is recorded for us uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, chapters 11 to 13. So I'm just going to read sections of it, and you can follow along in your bulletin or your Bible if you want. I'm going to read Mark 11, 27 uh, through verse 33, and then I'm going to pick it up again in Mark 12, uh, verses 28 uh, through 40. This is God's Word. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 
And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear your voice this morning. Father, we are broken and needy people that need not only your grace, but need to hear your voice into our mess, into our brokenness. So, Father, use your word that is so powerful to speak to our hearts here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, heard a story on the radio this week. It might have been NPR that I was listening to, but I'm not real sure exactly what it was. But it was asking the question about who is, who is wielding uh, all the authority in the, the Oval Office, in the presidency now. And it was speculating as to, to who's the one that's in the president's ear, or who are the ones that are in the room that tend to be the influencers. And because it's a new administration and we're getting to know things, we don't know exactly who are the ones around the president that are yielding the most influence. Uh, historians have, have looked back at the Bush, Bush presidency and said that it seemed like Dick Cheney, who was the vice president, held a lot of authority or influence in the Oval Office. Others looked back at the, the Clinton administration and said when it came to foreign policy, Al Gore held all of the authority when it came to this most important position in our government. It makes us think about a, a question that applies not just to our government, but to all of life, and that is... Who calls the shots? Who are the ones that are in control? Who is in the position of authority? To bring it closer to home, think about it this way. We've all been in in work groups or in group situations where it seemed like no one wanted to take the lead. Nobody wanted to call the shots. Nobody wanted to be in charge. And then we've been in other group situations or or other work situations where everybody wanted to be in the lead, where everyone wanted to be the authority, where everyone called the shots. And both scenarios tend to be incredibly frustrating scenarios. But this question of authority takes on a a much deeper meaning when we think about it in, in terms of faith and life. Who calls the shots when it comes to your life? Who calls the shots when it comes to your faith and your faith commitments? In some ways, the the last Tuesday of Jesus' life was all about this question of authority. Who is in charge when it comes to matters of faith and life? And what Jesus is really doing in this passage, and Mark helps us as the gospel writer, is he helps make a comparison of authority that is derived from human nature and authority that comes from above. And I think Jesus makes these statements in this passage, but the first is that he is making a statement about human authority and the nature of human authority. If you've been with us, you'll know that on Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem along with many other peasants and pilgrims. They had entered into Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover feast. And as we looked at that passage, we were reminded that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a king, a new and unique king coming in to usher the kingdom of God. On Monday, we observe a bunch of bizarre incidences where, where Jesus curses a fig tree 
And then he enters into the temple and he disrupts temple worship. He starts overturning tables. And what, it's, what we saw out of that is that Jesus often brings disruption into our lives that brings a greater fruitfulness and deeper passion to our lives. But then we come to Tuesday, and Mark records a lot of information on Tuesday, three specific chapters on Tuesday. And all of them are, 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 are chapters and stories that are marked by conflict. If you look at Jesus' three-year ministry, you'll see that, that all three years were really marked by conflict. It was not an easy road from Jesus from the very beginning. But then when we come to, do, to Tuesday, it is just one conflict after another. And it was all over this idea of authority. And you get a sense that a storm is building or, or a storm is coming that will end up consuming Jesus and his followers by the end of the week. Jesus really tangles with, with three different authorities or three different groups on that Tuesday. And every single one of them were approaching Jesus in order to discredit him and in order to entrap him in their ploys and in their, in their conflicts. The first group were the, were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. You read about them in chapter 11. These, these chief priests were the, the Roman collaborators of Jesus' day. They were appointed by Rome in order to, to govern the Jewish people. And the chief priest role was originally intended to be a religious role. They were intended to, to lead the people in worship. But in Jesus' day, it had taken on a level of corruption. It had become a corrupt political role. And what those chief priests would do is they would appoint elders who would mix together all sorts of selfish, uh, selfish ambition and all sorts of political corruption. And to make matters worse, they would put a religious veneer over it all to make it all look very holy and very religious. The scribes were the, the lawyers of, the Jesus, of Jesus' day. They were experts on both the, the civil law and the religious law, but they were known by most people to be incredibly cruel. They would be specially exploitative of those who were vulnerable in the society in which Jesus lived. So in verse 11, this, or in chapter 11, this group comes to Jesus and they, they try to entrap him over a question of authority, specifically related to John the Baptist. And Jesus, of course, outsmarts them. Whenever I read this passage, I think of the old Princess Bride movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but there's a line in there that says, never get in an argument with the Sicilian. And there's a, a funny scene that goes along with that. And I always think of that because all these people come to Jesus. They come to entrap him. They come to carry him into their schemes. And Jesus outsmarts him. Never get in an argument with Jesus. Never get in an argument with God himself. The second group that approaches Jesus we see in the next chapter in verses 13 to 17. These were the Pharisees and the Herodians. And these were the religious conservatives, at least theologically, of Jesus' day. And, and they hated the Romans. They hated the fact that they were oppressed by the Roman people. And they were constantly seeking ways to subvert the Roman authorities. So they, they come to Jesus and, and try to entrap him over a discussion of how they are to pay taxes to Caesar. But Jesus eventually turns the table on them. And the passage tells us that they marveled at Jesus because of the words that came out of his mouth. 
The last group we see also in in chapter 12, in verses 18 to 27, these were the the Sadducees. They were the the religious liberals of Jesus' day. They also had collaborated with the Romans in an attempt to seize power for themselves. They were very politically minded, the politicians of Jesus' day. And, and they come to Jesus and try to entrap him over, over discussions of marriage and afterlife. And once again, Jesus turns the tables on them and they don't even know how to respond. One author summed up Jesus' Tuesday well when he said this, Everyone perceived the teachers of the law as models of those who loved God. But Jesus saw through their religious showmanship and examined their hearts. They were in love with themselves, their exposition, and their financial and religious success. You see, whether it was the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all those people that approached Jesus, they all really had two things in common. They were in the business of taking their authority and using it to make other people feel small. And they were also captured by fear. I can remember when I was in grad school, I had one particular professor who opened a class. I don't remember much of the class at all, but I remember one of the things that he said at the very beginning uh, of his class. It was at a school that had a very high uh, reputation for academics. It was well known for its academic rigor, and it was well known for producing scholars, whatever that means. And I can remember the professor, when we first came in for that first class, looked at us and he said, this class is going to make you smarter. It's, you're going to learn a lot of things. You're going to learn a lot of tools that it's going to make your intellect very sharp. It's going to, you're going to learn a lot of things that are going to help you win arguments. And you have a choice with what to do with everything that you're going to learn. You can either take this and use it to make others feel small. Or you can take what you learn and use it to build others up. You see, you get the sense from the gospel that all of these human authorities that Jesus tangled with used their authority to make other people feel small. They used their authority to oppress other people. They used their authority to make themselves feel good about themselves or to serve themselves. And this is why Jesus has really sharp words of condemnation for them in this passage. But you also get the sense that all of these leaders, despite their power and despite their authority, they were captured by fear. Mark says three times in these short chapters that they were driven by fear of the crowd. You see, they had to please their constituency. They cared more about the crowd than they did about the kingdom of God. They cared more about advancing their own authority and kingdom than advancing ultimately the kingdom of God. In fact, because they were so intent on advancing their kingdom, they totally missed everything that Jesus had to say. And in the end, they actually became oppositional to the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing. Their authority was derived from human sources And it led to all sorts of abuse and fear. 
Friends, in some ways, this is the very nature of this thing called sin that we talk about. Think back to Adam and Eve who were in the Garden of Eden. And sure, they, were, they committed that first sin. They violated the one commandment that God gave to them to not eat of the fruit. But have you ever thought about what was the sin that was behind the sin? What was the sin that was behind eating the fruit? Well, you can think about it in terms of the very thing that Satan tempted them with in the garden. He said to them, if you eat that fruit, surely you will be just like God. And when Satan tempted them with that, that is what did it. You see, friends, behind every sin is our attempt to be our own God. In our rebellion, we don't want to live under God's authority. We want to call the shots. We want to be our own man. We want to be our own woman. Maybe you've heard of the term cafeteria theology. We've talked about it here at City Church before, but cafeteria theology has become a really popular way of thinking about religion and faith in our culture. And what it is, is it's when we take certain pieces of the Bible and maybe this part of the faith and we adopt it and we just pass by the unsavory parts of the Bible we don't want to talk about or the, or the parts of our faith that are unpalatable to our modern consciousness. But when we do that, who is the final authority? We are in judging what we're going to believe and what we aren't going to believe. Just as it did for the leaders of Jesus' day, this sort of abuse leads to all sorts of oppression, all sorts of abuse, and it is characterized by fear. You see, if our human authority is derived from human sources or from ourselves, then you and I will be just like those in the story. We will live in fear of the crowd. Ask yourself, do you live in fear of other people? Do you constantly live to please others in your life? Are your moods subject to the approval or disapproval of those people that are around you? Do you care more about being served than in serving others? Is approval like a drug to you? Once you get just a little bit of it, it's never enough. You want more. You need more. Do you live in fear? If so, that means that you are not living under the authority of the kingdom of God. Instead, you are seeking to advance your own kingdom. You are seeking to call your own shots. But what is the alternative? What is Jesus saying here about another type of authority, a heavenly authority? In, in chapter 12, in verses 30, 28 to 37, Jesus has a very different interaction with one of the scribes of, Jesus, of his day. The scribe comes, approaches Jesus, and he wants to know which of the commandments is the most important. And what this man does is he seems to demonstrate that he has a certain understanding of the law. He is, after all, an expert of the law. But he also comes to Jesus hungry to understand Jesus' perspective on the law. And Jesus says something really kind of interesting to him at the end of their narrative. He looks at that man and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
Now, why does Jesus say this? He says it because the man seems close to understanding who Jesus actually is. He comes close to understanding that Jesus may actually be who he claims to be. Jesus may actually be God. And if he is, that means that he is the ultimate authority. Just like King David before him, Jesus has all of the authority. In fact, Jesus even says in this passage that he has authority over King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and he has that authority because he is God. He was not simply a man. He was not simply a moral teacher or some sort of ethical example for us to pattern our lives around. He was God in the flesh. Friends, this really is the point of this passage. It's the point of all the scriptures that Jesus is God. And if he is God, then what he says is authoritative. Brings to mind uh, to me one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes that he wrote in Mere Christianity. He said this, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, Lewis understand, understood that Jesus was, was not someone to be trifled with. He doesn't leave for us any middle, middle ground in terms of what it means to believe in him. If he is who he said that he was, then it changes everything. If he was and is God, then he is the one that calls the shots. He is the authority, and following him necessarily means we put ourselves under his authority. He calls the shots, we don't. But his authority, rather than being stifling and abusive, is actually what the gospel tells us, the only path to true freedom. It's the path to freedom from fear. It's the path to freedom from sin. It is freedom to live life the way it was intended to be lived. You see, Jesus didn't use his authority to abuse and to oppress others. That's the way of human authority. He didn't use it to make others feel small. Instead, he gave it up in order to build us up. 
the God of the universe, allowed his hands to be stretched out on a cross. His authority was mocked by a sign that was hung above his head. His creation spit at him and mocked him. The one who deserves and deserved all authority was executed among common criminals. He gave up his authority so that you and I could experience life. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. One of the earliest creeds of Christianity was very simple. Before we had the Nicene Creed and and before we had the Apostles' Creed and libraries of systematic theologies, the faith was summarized in three words. Jesus is Lord. In fact, there's historical studies that said as, as Christians would travel from city to city, the ways they would identify themselves would be to simply go up to one another and say that simple creed, Jesus is Lord. Have you said these words? Do you realize the full extent of what those words mean? Because what those words mean is that you no longer call the shots when it comes to your life. You are now under the authority of Jesus Christ. It means he may or may not necessarily get on board with your agenda for your life. He doesn't just get authority over a small part of you, the religious part of you. He gets authority over all of it. It means you ultimately get on board with his agenda for your life. That all of your life, every piece of you, is underneath his authority. If he is Lord, then that means that you are not. You no longer live to advance your kingdom. Instead, you live to advance his. Let's pray.